If someone, let's imagine it's someone living in Loughborough, wanted to find out about God. And how do people find out about anything these days? Well, you look on the Internet, don't you? So this person wants to find out about God and looks on the Internet. And what groups and organizations would he find that claim they'll help him find God? Have a think. And I'll ask you to shout out. Well, not shout. You're not allowed to shout to say some answers in a minute. What groups and organizations would he come across that would that would claim to help him find out about God? Ideas that can be as wide ranging as you want to. None. There's loads, loads. To... Let's hear some answers. Right. Church websites. And there's going to be a whole variety, aren't there? There's going to be. Well, if he's in Loughborough, there's going to be Hollywell and New Life and there's going to be Emmanuel and there's going to be Trinity Methodist. And we could go on, couldn't we, for 30 something. OK, so there's church websites. What else? There's going to be the Salvation Army. Thank you. The Jehovah's Witnesses. Madrasas. So um, Islamic schools. Yeah. And mosques. What else? We've had church websites. Those churches could be a whole variety, couldn't they? I've said, but there's, some will be Protestant, some will be Roman Catholic. It's an obvious big distinction. And Orthodox of Russian and Greek varieties. What else? Yes, that will tell you something. So there's going to be various other websites, aren't they, that are information websites. There's going to be Desiring God Ministries and there's going to be Joel Austin. And by the way, I put I thought I'll just try this out. I put into Google help to find God and up came the Huffington Post. You know, Huffington Post, American newspaper. They've got a spiritual advisor. What does he say about how to find God? He says, well, actually, you are already united to God, whoever you are. Everyone is. And every thought you have about God is God. And interestingly, he quotes the psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 46, and somehow gets that to agree with him and says Jesus agrees with him. We all, everyone is united with God. And every thought you have about God is God. Wow. What else? Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, Hindus, Sikhs, Jews. We could go on for a very long time, couldn't we? So many claiming to represent God. So many of all sorts of different shapes and colours. How do we keep safe when there's such a variety of voices? Or is that actually an unnecessary question? There is no danger because they're all just they've got different styles and ideas, but they're all different ways to God. Well, those are big questions. I don't pretend I'm going to answer them fully this evening, but we will get help. God willing, from 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. So let's turn again to the passage Malcolm read to us. 1 John 2, verses 18 to 27. And we get help with how do we keep safe when there are such a variety of voices claiming they will tell us the way to God. We're in a series through this letter of one John. And I said back at the beginning, it is a letter both polemical and pastoral. 
Do you know those? You remember those words, polemical and pastoral. I like the word polemical. There's something nice sounding about it, but it's not really very nice actually, because it means a written or a verbal attack. And one John is quite honestly an attack. There's an attack on false teachers, but the attack is for pastoral reasons to protect God's people. It's polemical and pastoral, and it's written to give confidence, both objective and subjective. There's two other nice words. Objectively, what the truth is about Jesus and subjectively, do you have life in Jesus? And so a phrase that keeps coming up in one John is we know he wants people to be certain and confident. We know we know. And then in chapter five, verse 13, he reveals why he's saying this. I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that's just a reminder of what's going on in this letter. And as part of that, giving them confidence and protecting them. He here gives them something to keep them safe. When there are so many different voices claiming to tell us about God. So let's take verses 18 to 27 in two parts. And the first part is verses 18 to 23. Beware there are antichrists around. Verses 18 to 23. Beware there are antichrists around. Verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. Let's just stop before we go any further. What does he mean by last hour? Now, the New Testament talks about last days. And it talks about last times. And it means by that all the time from when Jesus ascended to heaven until he comes back from heaven. Those are the last days or the last times because the kingdom has come. The waiting for the Messiah is over. His good news is being spread. There's no other major event until he comes back. It's last days or last times. John might mean simply that. Although I suspect he means something a little more specific because he says last hour. And within those big last days, which so far are 2000 years, the New Testament talks about a last time. There's last times and then there's a last time within them. A a time of trouble right at the end. If you were here, was it last Sunday morning I preached from Revelation? I think it was last Sunday morning. Thank you, Malcolm. Someone was listening. And uh, I, I did talk about a, a particular time of trouble right at the end of the last times, a particular last time. Now, John can't mean that exactly. Some people say that's what John means. And ho ho, John got it wrong. We now know 2000 years later it wasn't. So he can't mean that because history has proved he wasn't in the very last small time. And of course, this isn't just what John thinks. It's God's word with no mistakes. But he could mean they were in a time with similarities to that last time. To that last hour, he could mean they're in something that's a little like a foretaste of that last hour in some ways. It might actually be significant in verse 18. You can always read too much into little details, but it might be significant that he doesn't actually say the last hour. I know he does in our Bible, but in the original, there's no word the there. It it could be that it ought to be translated a last hour. Yeah, 
someone like Margaret will know you always have to be careful with these sorts of things. You can read too much into them. But that understanding of verse 18, that it is a little taster of the last hour, might be strengthened by what comes next. So let's read on. Verse 18. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. John is the only person in the Bible to use this term Antichrist. But others refer to the same person in the Old Testament and For example, Paul in 2 Thessalonians, a person who at the end of the world will oppose Christ in some particular manner different from before. There is one particular Antichrist coming right at the end, but there are many who are anti-Christ, they're against Christ along the way. Including people who had been troubling the church John had John was writing to. So maybe that lends some strength to there is an antichrist coming in the last hour. We're we're experiencing people like them now. So it's a little like the last hour. Now, I think this is a good point at which to to point out something about the way that John writes. And he, he labels these people as antichrists. The way John writes is quite striking. And it's quite contrary to what is acceptable today. Put it this way. If someone says your way of thinking is rather binary, are they being complimentary or accusing you? Your way of thinking is rather binary. It's an accusation, isn't it, today? It's not a compliment. It's seen as a bad thing to think in a binary way, to be black and white. We want things to be shades of grey without a definite black and white. The idea that we're not just male and female, oh, that's very binary, is just one example of the general feeling around today that binary is bad. But John is very binary. He's very black and white. So there are, in verse 18, antichrists. And there are, in verse 20, anointed people. You might not see how that's binary, but the word anointed people is the same as the word for Christ. There is one antichrist coming and there is one Christ who's come. But there are many antichrist-like people around and there are many Christ-like anointed people around. There are, verse 21, lies and truth. There are, verse 19, leavers, and there are, verse 24 and 27, remainers. Leavers and remainers, okay, not in the Brexit sense. But there are, verse 19, people who leave the church, and verse 24 and 27, people who remain in Christ. And they're clearly seen as opposites. Leaving the church and remaining in Christ are opposites. That is a very high view of the church. There is, we've seen earlier in chapter two, hate and love. And John doesn't give room for any middle ground between the two. We've seen back in chapter one, there is darkness and light. And John says, you're either one or the other. Now, this isn't just John's temperament, that he's a bit of a hard man. In fact, he's called the apostle of love, remember. It's God's word. And it's also characteristic of Jesus himself. Can you think of how Jesus was rather binary? 
He said, you're either sheep or you're goats. You're either on my left hand or my right hand. You're either wise or foolish. You're either for me or against me. You're either wheat or you're weeds. Jesus was rather binary. He says, you come, there are two categories. Which one are you in? I'm not just reporting his question. I'm asking you, which one are you in? Answer that to yourself. Let's move on. Verse 19. They, these antichrists, went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, this is not everyone who leaves a church is antichrist. It's not that. You can't push it there. Leaving church is a serious thing. It should only be done carefully in unity with and submission to the elders of the church you are leaving, unless you're saying they're not true elders, they're not your spiritual shepherds, which is a really serious accusation. So I'm not saying you can never leave a church, but it is a serious thing to be done the right way. But verse 19 is not all people who leave churches are always antichrists. He's talking about people who are active false teachers. Verse 26 26, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. They're not just accidentally tripping you up. They're trying to lead you astray. And so verse 19 is saying such people can attend church, but not truly be part of the church. Such people can look like good Christians. But the way they end up shows that they never really were Christians. If they were in the first place, they would have stayed that way. Because you can't be born again and then unborn again. You can't have eternal life and then not have eternal life. It wouldn't have been eternal. These people are antichrists, but they look like Christ people. Because you can't always tell easily what an antichrist looks like. When I was little, there used to be these stickers in shop windows that said, watch out, there's a Christmas thief about. There's a picture of a man with a mask across his face and a um, Christmas tree over his shoulder running. So I, as a child, always got the impression that's what a thief was like. Mask over the face and a Christmas tree over your shoulder running. But I'm sure that thieves don't look as obvious as that. And antichrists don't look as obvious. They're wolves, but in sheep's clothing. Now, this is not be suspicious of everyone. That would just tear the church apart, be suspicious of everyone. We should take people at face value unless there's good evidence not to. But this is saying don't be naive and don't be unsettled when someone turns out not to be quite what he appeared to be. Let's move on. What is their false teaching? Let's move on to verse 22. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the father and the son. Their false teaching is, to put it in very simple terms, the problem with it is it gets Jesus wrong. Now, verse 22, they deny that Jesus is the Christ. Christ means Old Testament Messiah. It was probably not that they simply said, look, Jesus wasn't the Messiah. 
Yes, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, but he was a fake. He wasn't really the Messiah. They probably didn't say it as directly as that. Given the problems arising in the church when John was writing at the start of what's since become known as Gnosticism, they were probably saying the man Jesus was different from the Christ. The Christ was the son of God, the spiritual being. The man Jesus, well, he was a physical being and the spiritual being inhabited the physical Jesus for a while, but wasn't one and the same person. Yes, so they're not they're not as straightforwardly saying, look, Jesus just wasn't the Christ. They're saying Jesus was a physical man who for a while was united to the spiritual Christ. If you're familiar with Philip Pullman, heard of Philip Pullman, his dark materials was written by him. And I think the BBC had it this year showing it. He's been influenced by these ideas and they come out in his books. Um, And it may sound to you like. A strange little technicality. You know, they basically believed that Jesus was the Christ, but this technicality of them not being quite the same person. But it's not just a little technicality. It strikes at the heart of God's plan and it gives big problems. Things that look like little technicalities cause big problems when they're when they're over something utterly fundamental. Here's just a silly little example. Last time I went to Zambia, I needed to get the train from Loughborough to Heathrow. So I went online and I got myself a ticket and I was pleasantly surprised by how cheap it was. It it was a very cheap ticket from Loughborough, from Loughborough Junction to Heathrow. So you you must know more than me (laughs) from the way you've reacted. So there I am with my luggage and I'm going to go to Zambia with my nice cheap ticket from Loughborough Junction to Heathrow. But it turns out that Loughborough Junction is not Loughborough Station. Ah, And however much I might argue with East Midlands, it's just a little technicality. It says Loughborough to Heathrow. It happens to say Loughborough Junction. They're not going to have it, are they? Because it seems from the way you react that, you know, Loughborough Junction is a station in South London, not very far from Heathrow. By the way, I found out before I arrived at the station and managed to get my money back. You see, it isn't just fussing over a little technicality. It's a fundamental problem. And get wrong who Jesus is and you've got wrong the way to heaven. It's not just a little technicality. And you've got wrong the one who can give us life. And you've got wrong what life is to be. And you've, you're worshipping the wrong God. So you're actually breaking that commandment we considered in home group on Thursday. So anyone teaching the wrong Jesus is leading people astray and is an antichrist. Not notice I said anyone teaching the wrong Jesus. This isn't the same as if you've made some slip up in your understanding of Jesus, you're an antichrist. No, no. Heresy is to get something fundamental like the person of Jesus wrong and persist in it and teach others. It's not just making mistakes. Okay, so the first section was beware, there are antichrists around. The next section, let's move on to verse 24 to 27. And this is how to be safe. How to be safe when there are antichrists around. And we are given two ways, but they're not two options and you can have one or the other. We need both. The first is the apostolic message. Verse 24, 
24. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. Now, John is keen on reminding them that the gospel he teaches is original and authoritative. So this sort of phrase is fairly common in his book. What you have heard from the beginning. For example, chapter one, verse one. Whole book starts like this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The whole language is one of this is original and this is said with the authority of one of Christ's apostles. Chapter two, verse seven. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. The Apostle Paul is similar. He said to Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. It's it's a nice easy one to remember, all those twos. 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. He said, I received my message from Jesus and now I'm passing it on to you so that you will pass it on to reliable people who will then pass it on to the next generation. There is this emphasis in the New Testament on apostolic authority and the message that is reliably handed down. You make yourself vulnerable to Antichrist if you're looking for something new. Now, we've all got more to learn. But if you think always what you need is to learn something new. The key to the Christian life must be something new that you've never heard before. Or you're bored with hearing the familiar. Come on, tell us something new. We've heard this before. You're making yourself vulnerable to antichrist, to false teachers. So much of the Christian life is actually going back to the familiar old message and learning afresh how it applies to your situation. And that familiar old message is, of course, the gospel. That's what he's talking about. The familiar old message of the gospel. We don't move on from needing to be pointed to our saviour. We don't move on from needing to be taken back to the cross. Uh, There was a missionary in, I can't remember exactly where it was, somewhere in Southeast Asia. And she was asked, do you get doubts ever? Oh, yeah, I certainly get doubts. Do you do you sometimes feel like giving your work up? Oh, yes. Many times I felt like giving up. Well, what do you do about that? And she said, I get out of the village and I get away up into the hills and I wrap my arms around the cross. Until I'm strengthened enough to come back down into the village and carry on my work. And what did she mean? Was there a cross erected on the hills? And she went and gave it a hug until she got splinters in her arms. No, she meant she did verse 24. She went back to the old message and she saw that it remains in her. She got it deep within. She takes it in. She meditates on it. She prays over it. She works at recapturing a sense of God's love for her and her sinfulness and how how much she doesn't deserve it, but how fully accepted and loved she is. She works at recapturing thankfulness and worship. That's what verse 24 is saying. That's what will safeguard you. But there's something else we need too. Even that isn't good enough on its own. So the next thing is, in verse 20 and 27, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And verse 27, as for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. It's interesting that verse 24 is about what you received from the apostles back at the beginning. And verse 27 is what you've already received, presumably at the beginning. This isn't telling us there is some sort of extra experience out there called an anointing that you need to get. It's about something you received at conversion. The word of God from the apostles and an anointing from. Well, who do you think the anointing is from? Clue is in the Old Testament, priests and kings were anointed. Oil was poured on them. When Jesus came, he was anointed. The Holy Spirit was poured on him. You can read that in Luke four. And ever since his people have been anointed with the Holy Spirit poured on them. You can read about that in Acts and you find that baptism with water represents baptism with the spirit. The Holy Spirit given to us at conversion poured out on us. So this anointing is, as you probably guess, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Let's investigate what this anointing with the Holy Spirit is. Have a look at verse 20, if if you would. But you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. The anointing results in knowing the truth and all of God's people know this truth. What is the truth that all of God's people know? Well, it's the truth that is opposite to the lie. Verse 21 I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Seems rather obvious, John. Why do you bother telling us lies and truth are opposites? Well, he's into binary thinking. But also, what is this lie the truth is opposite to? Verse 22. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This anointing means all of God's people know a certain truth, the truth opposite to the lie. The lie is getting Christ wrong. So the truth is getting Christ right. It's knowing him. Okay, that was a bit of a convoluted way of saying something obvious. Probably was obvious, wasn't it? Knowing the truth is knowing Jesus Christ. No surprise there, because Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. No surprise there, because Jesus tells us the work of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus known to us. And that also makes sense of verse 27. Do you find something a little odd about verse 27? Verse 27, as for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. (laughs) You say, "Okay, right. okay, that's the end tonight. No more teaching needed. Let's throw away our Bibles. John, why are you bothering writing to them? They don't need teaching. Well, he obviously can't mean that, can he? Because he's writing to them to teach them. So why does he say they don't need to? What is this teaching they don't need? Well, The Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they prophesied a new covenant that would come. And they said it would be characterized by the spirit being given to people, all of God's people. They wouldn't be like in the old covenant, Israel, people who really knew God and people who were just tagging along. No, all of God's people would know him. And it said all of God's people would know the Lord. They wouldn't need someone to say, hey, do you know the Lord? 
Well, we need to say that to people outside the covenant, not people inside. All the people in the covenant know the Lord. They don't need to be taught to know the Lord. They already do. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He he makes us know Jesus, the Lord, Jesus, the truth. So have you got it? Sorry, if, if I hope that hasn't become too convoluted. What are the two safeguards we need against the Antichrists? We need to keep hold of the apostles message handed down to us in the Bible. And we need the work of the Holy Spirit. And we must have both. And it is not hard to find all sorts of examples of going wrong when you claim to have one but don't have the other. And I have to say claim because you can't have one without the other. Not truly. So, for example, in recent years, what we would call liberal churches, and I dislike calling them liberal because liberal is a good word. Churches that are fast and loose about the Bible and, for example, want to go down the... Um, root of saying we affirm gay lifestyles. They don't do it the way people did 50 years ago. What, what do they do now? They tend to say we must follow the way the Holy Spirit is leading us. They put a lot of emphasis on the Spirit leading them. And he's leading us that way, that we must affirm gay lifestyles and see we've got it all wrong in the past. How, how can you answer that? Well, it can't be the way the Spirit is leading you. Because you cannot separate the spirit from the words. You need to keep hold of the original message of the apostles. And the spirit won't lead us in a way that contradicts that. The message he's put in God's words. But the word also won't get you anywhere without the spirit. Well, it won't get you where you need to be without the spirit. Here's your church history for the for the day. I like to drop in a bit of church history. There was once a boy called John Owen, and when he was a boy, he had a friend called Oliver Cromwell. Have you heard of at least one of these people? I hope. And uh, his friend Oliver grew up to be an army general and the only, um, what do you call him, sort of supreme ruler of this country who wasn't a king. The, The protector, thank you, the protector. John grew up to be the head of a university in a place called Oxford and uh, a man with very big brain. And he taught the Bible. And despite his big brain, here's something he said. He said, don't you dare try to take in the Bible. Don't you dare read the Bible without asking for the Holy Spirit to help you respond to it rightly. And he said, and don't dare do one of those things where you have your token prayer at the beginning, where you know you ought to pray, but let's clear that out of the way, because you're pretty confident, really, you can work out the Bible. John Owen, the Chancellor of Oxford University, the probably best theologian England has produced, said, don't you dare think that you can approach the Bible without the help of the Holy Spirit. You need him to give you that new heart at the start of the Christian life and you need him to keep guarding you along the way in the Christian life. We need both safeguards. This relates to a a conversation that some of us, I don't think any of them are here actually now, uh, some of us were having after home group. Those who were parents after home group in my home group were talking about dangers that our children face 
And the sort of issues that are coming up uh, at schools and online and uh, actually a teacher was giving examples of children being encouraged to consider, am I a boy trapped in a girl's body and all that sort of stuff. And we're talking about how can they be safe? Well, here we've got in one John at least part of the answer. How can we be safe from these anti-Christian ideas? How can the children be safe? They need to be convinced that the message in God's word is the best way. And they need the work of the Holy Spirit in them. They need to understand that God's way is best written in the Bible. But that in itself isn't enough. They need their hearts changed by the Holy Spirit. Parents here, I hope you know your children need both. They need both. They need you to show them what God's word says and that it is best. And they need you to pray for them for the work of God's spirit changing their hearts. Children, I hope you know that you need both. You need to discover what God's word says and that it is really, it is so much better than all that nonsense out there. But just knowing that is not good enough because you need your heart changed. And you need to pray and ask for God to do that. Well, John gives us a warning. In a world full of many, so many messages about how to know God, here's how to be safe. We need God's word and his spirit and both are essential. But actually, his aim is bigger. His aim is more positive than that. Let's finish on something more positive. It's more positive than just keeping us safe. Verse 24. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the son and in the father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. The aim isn't just to keep safe. The aim of having God's word in us is so that we are one with Christ himself and through him with his father. And that is eternal life. To know the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. And surprise, surprise, the Holy Spirit has exactly the same aim. Do you spot it at the end of verse 27? As this anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, the anointing has taught you, remain in him, remain in Jesus. The aim of the Holy Spirit is just the same. It's to get you remaining in Jesus. God's word and God's spirit combine with this aim to make you love Jesus. And to keep you relying on Jesus and to help you keep going following Jesus. If you look sometime in our red hymn books and you look at the authors of the hymns and you look at the dates that they've lived. And quite a lot of them were written in revival times, times when the Holy Spirit was active with particular power. And what sort of hymns did they tend to write? Well, there are some about the Holy Spirit, but it's not. Most of them, they mostly wrote hymns of praise to the Lord Jesus. That's what you mostly find in times of revival, in times of the spirit working in power, because the Holy Spirit was filling their hearts with love for him. Has he done that for you?